Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today, we're discussing what has been described as Canada's oldest and most high-profile murder investigation that has now recently been solved thanks to genetic genealogy. Let's get into it. It was on March 29, 1975, when 16-year-old Sharon Pryor left her home in the Pointe St. Charles neighborhood in Montreal, Quebec. She left around 7.30 p.m., leaving her purse at home. Sharon was meeting a group of her friends, as well as her boyfriend, at a pizzeria only blocks away, but never arrived. Sharon was a sweet and bright teen. She had a caring and nurturing nature, and had a particular affinity towards animals. She had dreams of becoming a veterinarian. She was known to be kind and warm, and was a remarkable student with a bright future ahead. The oldest of four siblings, she was an excellent big sister, and always set a good example for them. No one alerted Sharon's parents when she didn't show up at the pizzeria, as her friends had assumed she'd just stayed home that night. It wasn't until hours later, when she missed her curfew, that Sharon's parents figured out her disappearance and called law enforcement. Initially, detectives weren't concerned and felt that Sharon had probably just gone off with her friends, but her parents weren't convinced. Sharon always called home if there was a change in plans and was always home on time. She didn't have a history of running away, and in her bedroom was all her money and bus pass. As precious time passed, detectives eventually concluded that Sharon had been abducted, likely in the alleyway behind their home and on the way to the restaurant. No one saw or heard the abduction. Sharon's mother, Yvonne, remembered something. She said that Sharon had mentioned a strange man had been following her when she'd been walking home a few evenings before. Sharon had started getting male friends to walk with her home after dark. Detectives also believed another attack about an hour before Sharon's disappearance may have been connected. Blocks away from the alleyway Sharon may have been abducted from, 23-year-old Cheryl Roy was attacked a bit before 7 p.m. She was walking alone on her way to the pharmacy to grab diapers for her daughter when she saw a man walking in towards her on the other side of the alleyway. She said that he had his hands in his pockets and looked like he lived in the area. She didn't notice anything visually concerning about the man. She said he seemed very normal and thought he would just continue walking past her and she would go on her way. She continued, then suddenly heard footsteps running towards her. And when she turned around, she was shocked when the man that had walked past her was barreling towards her. The man grabbed her and pushed her against a building. She fought off her attacker, screaming and yelling. He had a knife which he pressed against her throat, telling her to shut up. She cut herself on the blade, pushing the knife away. She begged the man to take her purse, and he said, quote, 
I don't want your purse. I want you. I love you. She said he grabbed her hair and was trying to drag her to an empty lot. He was saying, quote, You're dead. You're not getting away from me. When I get through with you, I'll cut you to pieces. She screamed and struggled for about six minutes. Then a group of young boys started to run towards them. They had been investigating the screams. Cheryl knew one of the boys and called out to him. This forced her attacker to back away and run off. After the man ran away, she was helped into a nearby home and called the police. She described the man as about six feet tall, 200 pounds, Caucasian, with a mustache. She said he only spoke English and didn't have a French accent. He spoke in a calm, low voice during the entire attack. She also noted he didn't smell like alcohol, and she never got a good look at his face. Cheryl lost her voice for two days from the screaming. The man had tried to rip and cut her pants from her body. She thanked the kids for coming to her aid. After the attack, she felt that if she had passed out or hadn't made so much noise to attract others to help, she would be dead. Though unlike in Sharon's case, she didn't feel that she'd been stalked by her attacker. She didn't feel like she'd seen him before. The attack had felt completely random and unprovoked. It had been early in the evening, in a well-populated area, a bold attack. Detectives felt that two attacks in the same evening in the same area were not a coincidence. Cheryl did her best to work with police sketch artists and came up with this rendering. The sketch went around the neighborhood, but no one recognized the suspect. Detectives then turned to finding Sharon Pryor. Three days later on April 1st, a local beekeeper's neighbor called and said that one of his gates to his far pastures was open. He hopped in his truck and went to investigate. Snow was still on the ground, and it was still too early for him to be opening up the hives, so during the winter months, he didn't really bother with checking his fields routinely. When he got to the gate, he noticed it was indeed open. The gate had a padlock on it, but he never actually clicked the lock down. It appeared that someone had come by, popped open the gate, and driven onto his field. He followed the tire tracks, initially assuming some kids had gone onto the property to joyride, but then instead discovered something shocking. In some bushes, what looked to be a pile of clothes, a suede jacket, but in the clothes was the body of the missing teen, Sharon Pryor. Sharon was found naked from the waist down. Her jeans and underwear were recovered five feet from her body, caught in a bush. Detectives, as well as a medical examiner, believed that she'd been deceased for one or two days before she was discovered, coming to the conclusion that someone had held her captive for the weekend before dumping her body in the field. Her cause of death was blood aspiration. She had been severely beaten. Her autopsy showed that she had a fractured jaw, a broken nose, and multiple broken ribs. At the crime scene, footprints were also recovered near Sharon's body. The impression was photographed and preserved. The tire tracks in the snow were also very clear, giving detectives a good idea of what type of vehicle they were looking for. A man's shirt had also been used to bind Sharon's hands, and tape had been used to cover her mouth. Based on the footprint impressions and the size of the shirt, they believed they were looking for a man around 6 feet tall and 200 pounds, which matched the body type of Cheryl Roy's attacker. Despite the rigorous investigation and countless tips, detectives weren't able to locate the man that had attacked Cheryl, nor identify the suspect that abducted and murdered Sharon though always believing it was likely the same suspect. Law enforcement even put out a $10,000 reward for information, 
However, without a suspect, the case eventually went cold. In 2004, the case was reopened with the help of a tip. Detectives began to investigate a neighbor that lived a few doors down from the prior family. Detectives tore apart the garage on the property, believing it had likely been a garage near the abduction site that Sharon had been kept in for up to three days before she was killed. The garage was behind an apartment building and had been used to house garden and building maintenance tools of the building owner. With Sharon's murder occurring just before spring, it seemed like a perfect location to hide a kidnapped individual, knowing no one would need to come into the garage until the snow melted. They tore apart the building, even digging deep down into the soil below, looking for anything that might indicate Sharon had been there, but nothing was found. Likely too much time had passed, and again the case went cold. In 2023, new detectives opted to reopen the Sharon Pryor investigation, looking towards genetic genealogy to find answers. They started the investigation from scratch, finding male DNA on the male shirt that had been used to bind Sharon's hands, as well as on her clothing. They sent the DNA off to genetic genealogists, who were able to slowly piece together the unknown man's family tree. One surname popped up, Romine and law enforcement started to look into prior arrests around the time of Sharon's murder, and a suspect's name turned up with a lengthy criminal history in both Canada and the United States. Franklin Maywood Romine Born in 1946 in West Virginia, Romine had started his criminal career as early as 16, starting with petty theft and destruction of property, escalating to a vehicle theft at 18, and going all the way to breaking and entering, stalking, and sexual assault in his 20s. What's amazing about the case is we found this guy, and he probably never gave a DNA sample in his life. In the decades of investigation and countless tips, suspects, and interviews, Canadian detectives say Romine's name had never come up until last year when a DNA profile that was removed from that blue T-shirt and Sharon's underwear and pants made it possible to target the last name of the suspect. Then they got the name Romine, so then they just started looking at their criminal records. Well, they see this guy being very active in Canada and Montreal in the 70s, right? A violent activity, in and out of jail, and, and then... He had previously been incarcerated in 1964, but escaped prison and fled to Canada. He frequently bounced between Canada and West Virginia, racking up warrants in both countries. In 1975, he had been meant to be in prison in the U.S., but had fled to Canada in between sentencing hearings. In that case, he had stalked a waitress who had turned him down, broke into her house, and sexually assaulted her at knife point. Between the constant fleeing the country and escaping prison, it's unclear why he'd been released to the public, but who knows. Months after Sharon's attacks in Montreal, he'd been arrested by local authorities and extradited back to the U.S., where he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He served six in prison before being released. He died in Canada in 1982 at the age of 36, and it's unclear how he died. His death certificate was never discovered, and his body was sent back to the U.S. for burial. He was buried next to his mother in Putnam County. Cold case detectives reached out to Romine's living relatives, which included surviving brothers. His brothers weren't surprised that he was being investigated for murder. One of his brothers said that he had been estranged from the family years before his death. 
Franklin's brother was a Marine, and while overseas, Franklin had attacked his brother's wife, trying to sexually assault her. After that, the rest of his family had nothing to do with him. Franklin Romine was known to be unpredictable, violent, and aggressive. He had never been a suspect in Sharon's case, though he bore a striking resemblance to the police sketch that Cheryl provided to law enforcement. At the time of the murder, he was 28 and lived 9 kilometers or 5 miles from the prior home. The tire tracks in the original investigation were also matched to a vehicle that Romine had purchased while in Montreal, and the footprint found at the crime scene also matched his shoe size. Detectives petitioned to have Romine exhumed, though his family protested legally. While they had provided DNA to give a familial match, they didn't want their mother's grave disturbed. They felt that with the proximity of Franklin's grave to their mother's, it would be impossible to exhume one without disturbing the other. But the judge ultimately approved the exhumation. DNA was extracted from the remains uncovered and was tested against the DNA in Sharon's cold case, and it was a 99% match. Romine's DNA has been entered into federal databases in both Canada and the U.S., and his DNA is now being tested against multiple cold case murder victims. The FBI has also stepped in and is working with law enforcement agencies on both sides of the border to assist in determining any potential victims with similar circumstances. Sharon's mother, Yvonne, now 86, as well as Sharon's twin sisters, were given the news that her murder was finally solved after 48 years. They attended the press conference and spoke about who Sharon was before her murder, as well as thanking detectives for solving her cold case. It's hard to know where to start. We will start by saying how hard it was sitting through today's police presentation of Sharon's case as it brought back many difficult memories once again. We are still grieving the loss of our daughter and sister who was savagely murdered at the age of 16, March 29, 1975. Life has not been easy for us since then, but Sharon has given us strength for the past 48 years and especially today. Sharon is here beside us. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.